Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Thanks for sticking around. I know it's been a few months since I last recorded. I appreciate the folks subscribing to the podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. Really appreciate having you. This is my second time with this wonderful guest. I've always been curious about this topic, and after the last conversation, I remain curious and have a lot more questions for her. Dr. Emma Allen Virgo is back. If you haven't seen her previous episode, scroll back. You'll see them all there. It was a wonderful conversation, a lot of introductory stuff that we'd never talked about. And so we're going to build off of that conversation, focus on some of the key takeaways uh, from what we heard from Emma, and then build on that. So welcome, Emma. Really appreciate having you. It's been two years. There's, I feel like so much has happened in two oh, years. How so are you? much has happened. <laughs> How are you doing these days? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, really appreciate having you. Two years, so many things have changed. I think I feel like globally so many things have changed. Like we were in 2021, we were, it was in fall. We would have recorded um, pretty much two years ago. We were, the world was getting vaccinated from COVID. It feel, felt like everything was on the up and up. And then we head into 2022 and then we hear this war in Ukraine. Everything gets unsettled. Uh, there's this affordability crisis going on. It feels like just things started to unravel a bit. I don't know how the last two years have been for you, though. Well, they've been a bit tumultuous as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, you may know I have a company and uh, mm. that I spun out of my research. It's called New Biota. And uh, that has sort of hit some financial troubles like many microbiome companies just because mm. investment has kind of dried up. We're still, we're still there. We're still operating. We haven't folded. Um, we're hanging on by our fingernails. I have some hope that we will uh, improve, um, you know, our situation soon. Um, so that happened. But on the flip side, the um, the great news is that the academic lab is going from strength to strength. We, we're doing a lot of very new stuff. I mean, since I spoke to you, we're working on uh, honeybees now, which I'm sure you'll ask me about later on. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem like a very uh, <laughs> sure. sort of organic uh, transition from the human gut to the honeybee gut, but believe me, it is. Um, and um, mm. and I've got some incredible new staff and students, and um, uh, it's it's been a bit of a roller coaster. And I've been very fortunate, really, that um, that despite the craziness in the world, I can go to work, and the constant there is that we're doing good science, and that that seems to be continuing. Yeah. That's fantastic. I remember one of the students you were kind of highlighting in his, uh, you know, he was originally, well, not originally, but he was essentially a descendant from the Yanomami tribe. And so yes. I want to make sure we, we spend some time talking about that too. Uh, one of the take couple of takeaways that we, we focused on last time was diversity in the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Maybe just revisiting that. Is that still sort of a big focus in terms of, you said generally what you're seeing from a healthy microbiome is that it's diverse. Does that still remain to be true? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think um, it's a kind of a guiding principle in, in all ecology, really, that when you have a diverse ecosystem, um, it's more stable. And so mm. stability is the name of the game with a human body. Uh, it's trying to maintain stability and it's trying to maintain what we call homeostasis. And I don't mm -hmm. think the gut microbiome is any different from that. There is many different mechanisms that seem to control it. The chief one probably being the immune system. And mm. so um, uh, diversity, yeah, continues to be very important. And um, when we, we've, I've not seen any evidence to the contrary in any of the literature. 
um, in the last two years anyway. Uh, and I, I think, in fact, some of the research that's being done is, is, is actually upholding that. So I'm, um, I'm still convinced that diversity is important, but I'm, um, I'm also of the mind, like many microbiome scientists now, that it's not necessarily about the diversity of the species that you have, but about the diversity of the things that they do. So they're, in other words, the metabolic pathways that they do. And I might have mentioned it to you before, but, but, but bacteria in particular are incredible biochemists. They can do, they can metabolize things and carry out biochemical pathways uh, that only that you know mammalian systems can only dream about <laughs> and mm. uh, and and they're, they're far better at it than we are because they've had you know billions of years longer than we have to evolve and so they can do some frankly magical things <laughs> with um, with substrates that we give them that our own bodies can't do and so I think it's dawning on us that a lot of the diversity benefits that we have from our microbiome actually comes from what the microbiome is doing rather than what they are necessarily and that's a kind of a transition that's happened in the last I'd say 10 years or so I think a lot of us realized this from the get-go but we didn't really have the tools until more recently to, to study these metabolites and understand how you know what was going on and, and and which metabolites belong to which bacteria I think part of the issue there is that when you look at the genes which is where we started off um, looking at bacteria you know we sequence the genes we can see mm -hmm. what's there we can see the genes that they have a lot of them the genes in the human microbiome are what we call dark matter so we we can, we can look at the genes we can see what they are we can make predictions about p perhaps what they might do but we don't actually know what those genes code for and, and what the functions of those proteins are and then worse than that <laughs> it's more complicated because the metabolites that are produced these molecules um, you don't sequence those those aren't proteins those are small molecules generally and so you mm. you can you can detect them in a soup of you know a metabolome or something that's come from a human or poop or whatever but you can't tell where it came from originally not very easily mm. not without a lot of extra kind of steps so so we're just a kind of i'd say I, I wouldn't say we're in a, the infancy of doing this i think we've been doing it for a while but we're just at the point where we're starting to use tools like ai and, and other things to really start to understand yeah. what some of these genes potentially are doing and how they integrate with each other and there's a new field that's I, i'd say new it's it's probably newer uh to me but i think it's uh, been evolving for a while um uh, it's called multiomics and and essentially what mm. that is 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 combining all of the fields of omics, so we've got genomics, um, which would be their metagenomics, uh, transcriptomics, which is looking at the, the um, uh, at the uh, RNA, so at, at what the uh, DNA is coding for, and mm -hmm. then there's metabolomics and some other omics as well thrown in there for good measure, and so. Yeah those data sets that are produced they're enormous they're absolutely enormous when you're looking at a microbiome and so it's really only in the, few, the recent last few years that we've got the tools to be able to really integrate those data sets and, and see how they interact with each other yeah not not least because these uh, the data sets are so big that they take up you know more space than your average laptop would so mm. you need a supercomputer to really uh, to look at that in any in any great depth yeah. I remember that was another takeaway that you said was, as you just described, like, what are the microbes doing is really what's yes. key from yes. a, from a clinical perspective. Like, you know, we, we also talked about last time, it's not as simple as just adding, 
you know, a certain bacterial strain or a microbe into your body, even though, you know, it might, we might know it to maybe be beneficial or something like that. You can't just do that. So how does that, like, if, if, if it's really about what the microbes are doing, how does that translate in a clinical setting, right? Because, and we're going to get into it. I'd really want to talk about sort of lifestyle effects and things that you see on the internet with people talking about different foods and how they have, how that has an uh, influence on the microbiome and the gut and all that sort of thing. But just purely from a clinical standpoint, like what does a clinician do with that kind of information, I guess? Yeah, that, well, I mean, at the moment, there's not that much that a clinician can do. I, I think okay. bit, partly because we know about these micros, we've been known about them for a while now, we know um, some of the things that they do, uh, but we don't really know how to change your microbiome. Um, mm. And there are people that are trying. We've been trying fecal transplant, new biotas trying, you know, drugs and things like that. But the, the reality is that I'm not sure that you can necessarily change your microbiome overnight just by taking a tablet. We know from probiotics that that doesn't work. Mm. Uh, you know, a probiotic is only ever in your body for as long as you're taking the probiotic. It's soon lost. Uh, so but it's, does it, it's, it doesn't culture and develop and, and that sort of thing? No, that's one of a myth, the, the, the greatest myths about probiotics. Interesting. Okay. It's that uh, you have this idea that, you know, you go to the uh, the dairy section of the supermarket yeah. and you're picking up all this like functional yeah. food and you, you yeah. think, oh, I'm going to colonize my intestines with all of this amazing yogurt and, and all these yogurt microbes. <clears throat> in reality, that's not what happens at all. And even the best probiotics in the world, you know, the ones which are actually clinically yeah. trialed, um, <clears throat> you're not going to see any real... Uh, colonization. So wow. those micros pass through you. They they might get into the colon, and as they're passing through the colon, for example, they might interact with some of the microbes that are there, and they might, um, you know, that they, they might uh, allow some changes as a result of that. But they don't colonize. And I think um, I shouldn't say ever, because there are some instances, especially in people who have disarranged or um, you know imbalanced microbiomes to begin with where you can see certain probiotics uh, hanging around for a short period of time after they've been taken but again the likelihood of them staying for a long period of time is very very low that's that's big that's big Emma, because there's <laughs> so many people who um who use probiotics, right? Like, and that yes. was going to be one of my questions, especially when we talk about the influence of antibiotics is like, is there a use of, is there any benef benefits of using probiotics? So I guess then the broad question is, is do you see a case for pro people using probiotics then? Um, you know, I, I feel very mixed about this because I think that probiotics do have a place in medicine. But I think they're overhyped, and I'll tell you why. I think I think part of the problem is the way that they're marketed. So they're food supplements; they're not drugs. And so, uh, to be honest, you know, and and be and, to be and be blunt about it, a lot of the companies that make probiotics make up stuff uh, that, uh, in terms of um, you know um, the benefits that they may have, that are not actually rooted in any science whatsoever, and they get away with it because they're not held to the same regulatory framework that mm. uh, that a drug would be so that's one issue so the, the first issue is unscrupulous probiotic producers um, and there are so many of them it's so difficult to count and that's such a shame because there are amongst all of the probiotics available some good ones but to the average mm -hmm. consumer it's very difficult to figure out what's what's good yeah. and what's snake oil 
Um, there is a fabulous website, and I plug this as much as I can um, whenever I can, um, developed by a colleague of mine originally, but also now uh, there's some input from um, gastroenterologists. So it's actually rooted in medicine. Um, and I, I can never remember what the website is called, but if you do a Google search for Canada's Guide to Probiotics, it will take you mm -hmm. right there. And mm -hmm. that will give you some information on those probiotics and there are only a handful of them that have had clinical trials carried out on them that have actually any uh, clinical benefits now that i believe when the science shows you that there is an effect i believe it you know if the if the study is being done correctly i believe it i think the problem with probiotics is the way that people take them because okay. you know most of the time you're it's it's the walking well that take probiotics you're taking them not necessarily because you're sick but because you think that by taking them it's going to make you feel uh, better in some way mm. it's a bit it's the same as uh, vitamin supplements i can get onto that lately because i'm a bit mm. of a, a critic of those as well mm. but um uh so so a lot of people just sort of take them thinking that you know i'm okay but i can feel better i'll take this probiotic you're not necessarily taking them for any reasons. Maybe you have a, you know, oh, I've got a bit of a sore tummy or something like that. But there's no real kind of um, uh, disease you're taking them for in most cases. Mm -hmm. You're just taking mm -hmm. them to improve your gut health, whatever that means. And uh, and I think from that point of view, it's very, very difficult to uh, to ask a probiotic to make you feel better if it's such a nebulous thing that you're trying to make it do. Now, let me give you an example of that. So you would never go to a doctor and the doctor wouldn't prescribe a drug for you that would sort of treat a hundred different diseases, right? Mm. So, and, and so you can't sort of take, go to a, 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 you know, a health food store or whatever and pick up a probiotic and think that it's going to treat any number of diseases. There are no drugs that do that. Mm -hmm. And so most of the clinical trials that have been done, in fact, all the clinical trials that have been done by definition have been trialed against a particular, what we call indication. So a particular mm. disease and mm. where you see a benefit, that's great, but it doesn't mean that a probiotic that's been trialed and shown to be efficacious to treat let's say um, post-infectious colitis or something is somehow going to make your hair look lustrous right it's mm. it's just not it's not real and mm -hmm. we're expecting too much of these things now as i said i don't i don't necessarily disagree with probiotics and i really do think when the science shows that there's some benefit then there's then there's then that's that's real but really and honestly the benefits that we see from probiotics are modest at best the the great thing about probiotics is that they are um extremely safe uh, generally for mm. the for the general public now that doesn't mm. mean that they are completely 100% safe and there are mm -hmm. some reports you know few and far between but people who have severely immunocompromised immune systems you know a probiotic organism if it gets into your bloodstream can cause sepsis just like any other uh, microbe in your bloodstream and so okay. it's not it's not risk-free uh, but they're generally regarded as safe is, is the term and that's really just because they are safe for the vast majority of the people that would be consuming them um, so I think you know I, I have mixed feelings about them uh, a lot of people yeah. ask me do I take probiotics and I do not uh, but then I yeah. don't necessarily feel that I need to I don't you know I eat a healthy diet and I think that that's probably yeah. more important and uh, you were saying uh, Sorry, carry on. No, no, 
please go ahead. Yeah, no, I know. I was just saying I, I eat a healthy diet and I try, you know, hard not to do things that I know damage your microbiome. And um, and I think that that's that's enough, you know, taking a probiotic. Um, you know, we, we don't even know what the probiotics will do. You know, we can't predict that necessarily. And it's unlikely to have the same effect on every single individual because, as you know, everyone has a different microbiome. So, yeah, it's just a little bit, you know, I wouldn't, it's not sketchy science, but it's, it's just not strong science, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so that's very, very, very interesting. I think people are going to find that interesting for sure. Uh, you said you said a couple of things. So uh, one was about the it, it doesn't colonize. Sometimes they hang on. How do we know that for sure? Uh, like, what the studies or like how do we, yeah that the yeah strains like people don't ingest colonize. even exactly yeah, yeah yeah. So well, so the other thing about probiotics that's important to understand, and another way to tell if you've got a good probiotic that's been through clinical trials and and a bad one that's just snake oil, is um, is you need to look for for what we call a strain number, right? So probiotics are are um, I think the definition is live microorganisms which, when consumed in in um, I think adequate amounts, have a beneficial effect on the host or something similar to that, and um, but but the word probiotic has been kind of uh, you know bastardized in in that in the mm. in our in our language because we just assume that all bacteria that we eat are probiotics and they're not mm. that's not right. the definition of a probiotic and and you know this is part of the problem with this being food supplements you can even see it when you go to the supermarket and you pick up a yogurt and it says oh probiotic this or probiotic mm -hmm. that and it's just mm -hmm. not it's not the case mm. so probiotics are very uh, should be you know um the the definitions are very loose particularly in canada uh they're better in in europe but uh, but they should be defined based on the um the strain right? and what i mean by that is it's, it's not even the bacterial species it goes down to the strains so you could have two strains of um, lactocase bacillus ruteri which is a common beneficial microbe um mm -hmm. one strain has a has a beneficial has you know a probiotic effect let's say and has been tested and one strain doesn't it doesn't mean that the other strain has the same effects as the the strain that is a probiotic in fact it's very unlikely to mm. um and uh, you know another good example of this is e coli so i'm sure lots of your mm. listeners will have heard of e coli and it's been mm. in the news especially in alberta yeah. recently yeah. very sad um yeah. E. coli is, you know, it's, no, it's a pathogen, or we might think of it as a pathogen. But there's certain strains that are pathogenic, and, and particularly the one yes. that caused the problem in, um, in Calgary. In Calgary, yeah. Uh, but there are certain strains that aren't. There are many. I mean, there's E. coli sitting in your gut right now, probably doing nothing. Right. Uh, and then there is a, even a beneficial, like, probiotic E. coli. E. coli Nissle in 1917 is, a, is defined as a probiotic E. coli. And so... You can't just say probiotic E. coli, right? Because mm -hmm. then that, that's mm -hmm. not true. There's different strains and it's the same for every probiotic. And so we've got to be very careful when you're looking, let's say you're in the store and you're looking and if I got a good probiotic or not, you kind of need to really have a good look through the, uh, the information that, that's available to you. Uh, rather than just picking up a generic, because uh, the other thing that you'll find is that some of these good probiotics um, are, um, uh, that, that, that have clinical benefit to them. Um, they're sold in the stores next to a generic, which is packaged in a box with similar colors and things. It's obviously mm. a lot cheaper. 
And so the average consumer is thinking, well, I'm going to take the, you know, the generic, you know, yeah. but without realizing that it's probably a completely different microbe that has not gone through all the testing that may not even be there in the numbers that it says it is. I mean, it's, it's a very, very unregulated um, field. And yeah. so that's why I'm skeptical of probiotics. I think what I should say really is that I'm skeptical of probiotics in general. I certainly believe the data for some probiotic organisms that have been clinically tested. And that's the, that's the difficulty. And so that's that website I was telling you about. Yeah. That's uh, where you can go. You can find that information that will tell you which probiotic for which indication has, has shown some benefit. And I imagine those probiotics that that are seeing good scientific proof, they're probably not just available on grocery store shelves, I imagine. Well, actually, some of them are because they're still oh, okay. they're okay. still defined as food supplements by Health okay. Canada. And so okay. they're not uh, over-the-counter or anything like that. You can yeah. usually find them in a good um, uh, pharmacy or a yeah. good uh, supermarket. Sometimes they yeah. sell them as well in their... Um, in that their pharmacy section yep. um yep. and so uh, so yeah so it's so it's they shouldn't be difficult to get hold of they're certainly not prescription only uh, yep. as far as i know there there have been a few like the i think there was one called vsl number three that was a, a prescription one but now that's available as well um um you know, I think only online, but anyway, I'm not sure. Yeah. But again, it's it's very difficult to um, for the average consumer to know what's what unless they've got some source that they can go to. So I think yeah. that's uh, that's probably a good place to start. One of the things that you mentioned in our last recording was your concern around um, increased antibiotic use. Yes. And how that impacts the microbiome. So a couple questions there. One, uh, why, again, is that a concern for you? But then also, like... If, because I, I, from my understanding, when antibiotics are prescribed, a lot of them are pretty like wide. What do they call them? Wide strain or broad, or broad bro spectrum? Yeah, broad broad spectrum. Thank you. Mm -hmm. They're broad spectrum. I imagine it's almost like it can knock out all the the beneficial microbes in addition to sort of maybe the ones that are not so great. Is my is my understanding? But please correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so. Is there a case, is, is there anything that people can do after taking antibiotics over a long period of time, that sort of mm -hmm. thing? So I just want to explore that with you a bit. Yeah, so this is a big, big question and one that's being grappled with, you know, uh, with science and um, and I think it's a good way to go. And the first thing I would say, because I know that listeners will probably be really worried about this, you know, if they're on a probiotic, uh, sorry, an antibiotic, should they stop taking it? Absolutely not. Uh, if you've been prescribed an antibiotic, there's a very good reason for it. And physicians now in Canada are very aware of uh, and what we call antibiotic stewardship and, and you know, the, the need to be judicious about the use of antibiotics in clinical medicine. So they're not going to be giving you an antibiotic for frivolous reasons, just, you know, because you asked for it. You know, years ago when I was a teenager, I had uh, antibiotics for acne. And I think that was quite a common mm -hmm. thing. That would never mm -hmm. happen now. Uh, not in, mm. unless there was some other underlying, you know, reason for that. Would that and be so, like Accutane or something like that? Is that no? Accutane is a, I think, is a um, is a high dose vitamin A or something like oh, that. Okay. But okay. Um, okay. I, I can't remember honestly. I'm not a clinician, yeah. so I wouldn't yeah. know. But yeah. uh, but no, I was on tetracycline for um, a low dose tetracycline, which at the mm. time was considered to be, you know, a miracle cure for uh, mm. uh, for mild acne, which is mm. just, you know, it's crazy to think about it now. So I probably really damaged my microbiome. Um, but um, 
So, so yeah, so I would say that it's important if you've been given an antibiotic to take it and to take it exactly as you are told to take it. So mm. the other problem is, you know, we, we have another issue besides anti, uh, besides um, microbiome issues, and that is that, that of um, uh, antimicrobial resistance. And right. so those two kind of very different things, but, uh, but they result from antibiotic use. And we have to be very careful about how we use antibiotics. And that's happening. So that's good. Um, so um, the question then becomes, okay, if I've got to take all these antibiotics, let's say you had a nasty infection, those antibiotics would have saved your life for the most part. You know, mm -hmm. we have to mm -hmm. remember that, that before the time of antibiotics, if you had a major infection, you would probably die from it or yeah. at least be, yeah. you know, really sick for a long time and potentially disabled afterwards. And I don't think people appreciate that because antibiotics have been so transformative. So mm -hmm. I would never say stop taking antibiotics. They still are miracle drugs, but we need better antibiotics for sure. Uh, at the moment, as you mentioned, we have a lot of broad spectrum antibiotics and in the beginning when antibiotics were being developed, that seemed to be the best way to go about it because, you know, you didn't have to do all the testing beforehand. You could just mm. throw an antibiotic at a problem and it would probably have an effect. And that The mm. days of that are going, unfortunately. Mm. And what we're seeing slightly more, hopefully uh, now, and pretty, I've seen it in, in my own doctor's surgery, is that doctors are testing for antimicrobial resistance before they prescribe a, an antibiotic, which is the good way to go. The other yeah. problem, of course, is that we need more antibiotics. And um, pharmaceutical companies don't like making antibiotics because they're not good money spinners. They are curative mm. drugs. And so they don't, um, you know, you can't get someone hooked on it for <laughs> for the rest of their life. And so you can't make right. a lot of money from it. And it's, that's a, just an unfortunate reality mm. of the times that we live in. Um, and so we don't have a lot of new antibiotics coming down the pipeline or even um, the funding and the resources to really look at that. There is some fabulous work going on, actually, in Canada, uh, particularly at McMaster. Uh, Jerry Wright's lab, they're looking uh, for novel probiotics. They're doing incredible screening. Um, and we're being a bit more clever about it now so we can combine molecules together. We can also, um, there's... there's uh, uh, movements to try to develop antibiotics that don't get uh, into the gut where they can cause a problem with the gut microbiome but are absorbed much more effectively uh, into the body or they are only activated once they're absorbed so they're not damaging the microbiome. Mm. So there's a little bit more thought wow. now being applied to how antibiotics are going to be used. The problem there is that that's all great research. It needs to be picked up by pharmaceutical companies and that isn't happening. Yeah. I think the government yeah. is starting to intervene now by kind of almost forcing it because it's a, it's a problem that is going to become a crisis pretty soon. Um, yeah, so... Um, uh, so can you take probiotics then to, you know, undo the damage that, that you've, you know, if you've taken a big dose of antibiotics? Mm -hmm. And the answer is probably no, mm -hmm. uh, because when you are breaking, you know, when, when you're damaging your microbiome with probiotics, you're actually um, removing quite a large... Antibiotics. Sorry, antibiotics. I get the, okay. <laughs> I get the yeah, tea. Yeah, so yeah. you're Just damaging sure your microbiome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're damaging your microbiome with antibiotics and now you're saying, okay, I'm going to take this probiotic to replace what I've lost. But remember, most probiotics are only one or two species. And generally speaking, those species are not major 
components of the gut microbiome in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the types mm -hmm. of species that you're losing when you're taking a large dose of antibiotics tend to be the ones that are very sensitive to change. Uh, they, they are, they're the specialist microbes generally that, that really only utilize one food substrate or they, they, they mm. can go out, they can basically go extinct very quickly and that's generally what we see. And so although the whole microbiome can be changed, the interesting thing there is that in some people there's very little change and in other people there is. And, and so mm. this goes back to the issue that everyone has a different microbiome and we can't necessarily predict what an antibiotic is going to do. do something, At yeah. the moment, as I said, the, the risk outweighs, the, sorry, the benefit outweighs the risk, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the way that probiotics, sorry, that antibiotics are prescribed. So it's still a better bet to take an antibiotic and take mm -hmm. the risk that your microbiome might be slightly damaged. Um, I think uh, looking in the literature, where studies have done this, it's, it's also very difficult to do these studies now because it's not ethical to give, you know, volunteers antibiotics uh, mm -hmm. just to see what happens to their microbiome anymore. Uh, uh, so we have to kind of wait and sort of see what happens with individuals and that becomes very difficult to control. But where studies have been done, um, the, if your microbiome has been repeatedly hit by multiple courses of antibiotics in a short yes. space of time, let's say over a year or something like that, that's a bad situation and is likely to cause a problem. And I have a personal anecdote to tell you about there. So one thing that did happen last year is that my husband, poor soul, uh, his father mm. passed away. He went to mm. um, the UK to go deal with everything. And while he was there sorting out all of the stuff in the attic, he cut himself and ended up yeah. with sepsis in the hospital. Ugh. Yeah, very quick. I mean, I'm sure it was because he was run down and everything. So he uh, and I couldn't get there. But that's another story. Mm. <laughs> it's just I couldn't get there until for a few for a couple of weeks. You know, it was uh, and COVID caused a problem because I wouldn't have been able to visit him even if I could okay. get there. But he was on antibiotics yeah. for a long period of time, and um, now great news he's fully recovered that those antibiotics saved his life uh but he can no longer tolerate wheat he has a very mm. you know uh, he's got some ibs problems and probably because his um his gut microbiome was completely depleted in fact mm. Mm. somewhere in my freezer i have a sample of his poop <laughs> from years ago i could probably <laughs> test it and, and tell you that that's exactly what right. the case has happened but um and and so how do we fix that? Well, you know, he's my husband. If I knew, he'd be the first person I'd treat. And yeah. it's, but it's very difficult to know. So the treatment, if you like, that I've been giving him is just to make sure I feed him well, <laughs> or he feeds himself well, he doesn't need me. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that he, um, that he eats a wide variety of foodstuffs, uh, that he, he looks after himself physically. So he's, uh, he joined a gym because he decided he needed to get more physical mm -hmm. strength and uh, you know he felt very kind of weak and willowy once he mm -hmm. <laughs> once he came back to Canada yeah. so um did he take probiotics no uh, I didn't mm. I didn't think that it was worthwhile and um I you think actually that's right well well I <laughs> yeah. think actually he decided to take probiotics at one point and because uh, yeah. he was like I've got to try something and he went and he got yeah. one of the ones which is um you know has some clinical benefit but mm -hmm. it did nothing. And it, in fact, mm -hmm. it gave him more stomach ache. So he just decided mm -hmm. that that wasn't worth it. Now, the good news there, again, personal anecdote, I can't say that this is true for everyone, yeah. but yeah. it's been like two years now since that happened, or a year and a bit, and he's definitely getting better. So it could just be a time thing, right? It could just be, mm -hmm. it takes a little while for those microbes to, you know, if they've been completely lost for you to 
pick up other ones from the environment that colonize and do a similar job. They have a whole, there's a whole ecosystem that's got to be built. It's not as simple as just, you know, replacing one or two spare parts. Mm -hmm. I think it's a bit mm -hmm. more complicated than that. And unfortunately, it's, it's hard to do because we can't predict which microbes you're going to lose. And we can't predict going back to functions. We can't predict what functions those microbes would have had. And it was probably going to be different for every single individual. And so we don't have a one size fits all kind of treatment for that right now. Mm. I mean, you, you might argue that fecal transfer, like fecal microbial transfer might be a, yeah. a way around it. But that has inherent risks in it. It's also gross. <laughs> and access, so, too. Not everyone can get access to that. That's right. right so, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and even if you were to do a DIY, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> advise. But if you if you yeah. even if you were to do that, the risk is probably greater than the benefit that you might get yeah. at this time. Yeah. We just don't right. understand how you know how that how that might affect you. So, um, so yeah. So I. I I feel bad about saying it because people are always <laughs> sort of, you know, asking, you know, can, you know, how do I fix my gut right. after all this? And, yeah. and there really is no good answer to that. I think that all we need to do is to try very, very hard to, um, to look after our gut whilst it's, you know, whilst we're healthy. And, mm. um, and again, diversity does definitely play a role. Uh, but it's again, difficult to predict what you're going to lose because everyone's different. I appreciate you bringing up your husband because I was going to ask, I was like, Emma, I'm not hearing any pathways for healing here. Like, <laughs> give me something. But, like, <laughs> but, and, 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 but even, even with your husband, like, I guess uh, what I hear this as a takeaway, as you kind of uh, were indicating there is like, it maybe goes back to like the body has an amazing ability to kind of heal itself. Right. And you yes. give it time, you give it the right enablers and maybe it kind of gets back there. And like you said, it grabs microbes from the environment and that sort of thing over time. And maybe that's, that's sort of the key. So, so on that though, if you're saying that probiotics don't necessarily, uh, we haven't seen, uh, its ability to colonize in, in the gut. Um, but you're saying over time, like maybe microbes are picked up through the environment or whatever. Like, what's the difference, I guess? Like you're, yeah, you're, yeah. you're like probiotics are very intentional to colonize the gut, but like you're saying over time, there's, there's, uh, you get it from other ways and you could potentially colonize it that way. So I, I you know, yeah, yeah it's not a disconnect. Up, I, guess. I yeah, know, I yeah, know. Yeah. So, and I think that, you know, that's. Again, an area I, I feel like I'm a broken record. I keep saying, "Well, we don't know," <laughs> and, and the mm -hmm. things we don't we don't know. Yeah, we don't yeah. actually know how we pick up microbes and mm. how they stay. And so I should okay. say that when in the t in the case of the probiotics, uh, there was a study that was done a few years ago now where there were some individuals which did seem to at least temporarily be colonized by the probiotic that was being tested at the time. Again, one mm. probiotic, they're not all the same, so mm. it's difficult yeah. to know. And that kind of testing hasn't really been done thoroughly for all the probiotics that exist, so we don't really you know, know 100%. What I would yeah. say is if you have a... Uh, you know, as, as I said before, it's really about the walking well, right? The people that are really quite healthy and they're just trying to improve their gut. It's pro the probiotics probably aren't going to do very much. Mm -hmm. If you have a really destroyed gut, that's a different question because you're asking, you know, what you don't, now you're putting some uh, microbes into a place where they have the potential to fill a niche. Now, whether they will or not, that's the question. That's that's the mm -hmm. big question. And, and I think... Um, it does it it really depends on oh so many factors i think i think the biggest issue is as i said that a lot of probiotics are lactobacilli 
and uh, bifidobacteria. They are not, you know, bifidobacteria perhaps a little bit more, but but lactobacillus are not major components of the um, of the colon anyway. Um, mm. Maybe the small intestine, but um, but it's just so difficult to know what they, you know, how what they might be doing, how they might be acting, and some. Um, Lactobacilli can actually be, you know, they they are they produce things called bactericins, which are anti mm. antibiotics against other bacteria as a sort of like a natural defense mechanism about mm. other bacteria. So potentially, it's unlikely, but potentially they could they could actually start waging a war in your gut, like that that might might cause a problem. So it's probably a good thing that they don't colonize from that point of view. Right. Now that you right. can control the colonization. Now the yeah. whole idea of okay, well, what about picking up microbes from your environment? Mm. that's a tough one so we know that that happens in childhood we absolutely know mm. that because mm. you know that's how you pick your microbes up some of them come mm. from your mother but mm. not all of them and most of them you know you develop your own microbiome that's unique to your to your you to yourself if that um, wasn't the case then we'd all have microbiomes that looked exactly like our parents and that's not right. what happens so so we, uh, we're picking up all these microbes, but at some certain point in development, our microbiomes sort of become set. So I, I don't want it, to, it's not like they become immovable, but it becomes harder for other microbes to come in and, and take up residence. And that's and is probably an age, happening. Is there an age for that? Or Yeah, that so we think it's around about the age of between uh, two and three years old. And so oh, it kind of coincides with a, um, with a period of time where the immune system is becoming, is developing. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of makes sense, you know, your body becomes colonized. Mm -hmm. That colonization process takes a little while. You know, you start eating solid foods and you start eating more adult foods, even though you're a child, and, <laughs> but you do. And, uh, and then, um, and microbes are coming, you know, you're in, you're immersed in an environment full of microbes. And so your microbiome is a, um, is a product of all of that and the immune system is kind of attuned to it it becomes attuned mm -hmm. to it so it allows tolerant tolerance so that you tolerate that and you're not trying to reject it for your whole life yeah. so now the question becomes well okay so later on once that's happened say you're an adult does the same thing apply and the answer is we don't know because no one's really done any good studies to look at this it's actually a difficult thing to do because as a mm. as i said a controlled study that would you know not be ethical so it's um yeah we we don't know and so mm. my guess is that um that if you have a microbiome which is missing a function a key function or a key you know maybe it's been maybe you've taken antibiotics or something and you're missing a key function or a key group of microbes that that had that function that over time, if you became exposed to microbes that could carry out that function, they may not be the best fit, you know, in terms of a jigsaw puzzle, they may not be a perfect fit, but they may fit well enough. And in that case, the immune system, if, if they're there and they're, they're fitting and they're there and they're not doing anything nefarious to the body, the immune system may become tolerant. Now, this is hearsay. I don't know. This is the way mm. that I feel that things might be happening. Right? Yeah, and yeah. the issue there is that everyone has a different immune system as well some people's yeah. immune systems are very reactive to everything that they encounter and some people's yeah. immune systems are more tolerant and so there's a there's a two sort of a two play here going on and so some people who take antibiotics over time might get better quicker than other mm. people that take antibiotics and uh, and there's no way of figuring that out at the moment because we don't know enough about um you know what what factors control this so it's tricky and the other the other issue of course is that the microbes themselves 
you know, it's not as if um, these micros that are present in your gut are suddenly going to welcome an influx of immigrants. You know, it's uh, it's quite <laughs> yeah. a analogous system to the you world. You said it's a community. I remember. It. I remember. You, That's right. Yeah, I remember That's last right. time you said it's very much they work like a community, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. So you have to remember that too. That that you know, if the immigrants come in and they have a benefit to the society that they're going into, then then they're going to be tolerated mm -hmm. better. And it's mm -hmm. the same kind of thing that's going on in the gut. It's a terrible that's analogy. A really good analogy. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's effective. Yeah. 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 Um, interesting. You said something about your, you said with your husband, uh, he lost his ability to uh, digest wheat. Yes. Yes. What do you so, think? What do you really think? What, ha what happened? What happened there? Do you yeah. Think? So, so he's actually uh, celiac. And uh, so he, for the longest time, um, he didn't know this. We did 23andMe a few years ago and he got a, mm -hmm. a, the celiac marker and we thought, well, that's strange. He doesn't, you know, he can eat wheat. He, he, he mm -hmm. was always of the opinion that he could, he didn't like it. You know, he would eat bread and things, but not very much of it. Mm -hmm. Probably, you know, part of his body, part of his brain was sort of telling him it's not great for him. I don't really know. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, but he used to, you know, he used to enjoy it and um, and he never used to have any effects from it. Uh, mm. But once he came back from the UK, you know, having had all these antibiotics, he had this terrible uh, gut issues for a long time, in a lot of pain. He had diverticulitis for a bit and he got over that mm. and it was still in a lot of pain. And so I just suggested to him, based on some research that has been done recently, not in my lab, in, in other people's labs, you know, maybe it's some uh, some fibers um, and uh, could be a problem because actually, you know, we're told to eat a lot of fiber and that's, that's good advice if you have a good, mm. healthy microbiome biome but some people just can't tolerate fiber right and it yeah. could be uh that certain uh fibers um are actually pro-inflammatory when they're not digested so if you to eat a fiber and you don't have the microbes that are you know, present in your gut that can you know digest it into you know, less less inflammatory molecules, then you could actually cause a problem. So knowing this, I just said, okay, we're just going to cut out different fibers one by one. We started with wheat because wheat contains gluten and that's a known allergen. Mm. Um, and mm. um, and yeah, turns out that immediately he felt better within a week. And he hasn't eaten, eaten wheat since. We've, well... He has done by mistake, <laughs> and uh, and within you know within half an hour he knows he's in a lot of pain, and okay. uh, and and so now we know that that's what that is. Unfortunately, to be able to tell whether it's truly celiac disease, he has the marker for it, so I think mm. it is. But the test requires him to have to eat gluten and uh, for a bit, and then have some blood work done, and and he's unwilling to go through the pain. It's so miserable that he yeah. hasn't done that. So as well, doesn't make any difference. Just avoid wheat. It's not it's not like yeah. a uh, a huge thing. Um, it is for him, I think, but <laughs> I can yeah. say that because I don't have a wheat intolerance. But yeah, so he, it, it's quite stark. And, um, and so, you know, there's me thinking, well, we must be able to fix this. There must be microbes that can, you know, um, break gluten into something mm. which is not inflammatory. And I'm sure that there are, that there's work going on on this. I'm absolutely 100% okay. sure, but this isn't yeah. the only example of the microbiome being able to, um, carry out a metabolic or metabolic work uh, to kind of supplement your own genome that might be damaged. And we did a few years ago now, I published some work with Jacques Balik at SickKids and he works in, uh, in the neonatal department there. And there's a particular type of um, 
inborn error of metabolism, a genetic disability that uh, means that um, some children are born with the, without the ability to process a particular type of molecule called a um, uh, tetrahydrodifolate or something like that. I probably, mm-hmm. I've probably got that wrong. My biochemistry needs to, I need some revision there. But, um, but anyway, these particular individuals, um, when they're first born, they have an inability to regulate their blood pressure and they, mm-hmm. um, they have some, you know, projectile vomiting. It's really, you know, they're very ill young babies. But the interesting thing about this is that by the time they've got to two or three or four months old, they are they spontaneously recover. Hmm. So Jack was interested in the art. You know, he he wondered whether the reason that these these kids are spontaneously recovering was because they're now being colonized by microbes that are carrying out the activity for them. And so we are actually able to prove that that was the case uh, in mice. Anyway, we found the um, and and in. Um, Uh, from the human microbiome we found microbes that were able to carry out this biochemical work and that then you know when they colonized mice then it kind of got around the problem so essentially i suspect that we're all walking around with certain genetic abnormalities and deficiencies Mm -hmm. but our microbes and our microbiomes allow us to kind of function normally because they supplement those problems and so I think that that's, an, you know, that's another reason why we really need a high diversity of microbes to, you know, for health. From a resilience standpoint, almost, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I had uh, Dr. Ahmed El-Sahemi, who's from the U of T, and he studies nutrigenomics. Mm. And I don't know if you've, if you've looked into that field, but it almost, I feel like there's a link there, right? Like if there's, if there are certain, uh, if people are missing certain genes for them to be able to process certain or metabolize certain nutrients, um, and then now you're saying, okay, well, maybe the microbiome kind of is there to sort of support that. I think there's an interesting interaction there, but, uh, yeah, yeah very interesting. And, and that kind of, so I wonder that we also had a bit of a conversation on like missing microbes, right? So yes. do you think in that case, like with your husband or, you know, I can't, for some reason, I'm not celiac, but I can't tolerate gluten very well. Like I get yeah. very inflammatory response. Like, would you suspect that there could be microbes that are missing that, be able to, that are able to sort of metabolize yeah, gluten yeah. or things like that. Yeah, yeah, very possibly. And I think, you know, part of the reason I don't think I've been able to be very effective help for my husband is because this is going to be a small intestinal gut issue. Uh, okay. because this is, this is where you see celiacs brew, right? So, and this is where yeah. the, the, and, and my husband will tell you, I'm sure you'd say the same, that, that within half an hour of eating wheat, he's in horrible pain. So mm. that's, you know, that's not happening in the colon, that's happening in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and I study the colon, so I'm not that mm-hmm. much help. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. But so I think, um, yeah, I do think that there's, a, that there's, there's there's research going on for sure, and I'm sure that celiac research is in the microbiome. And I think again, at most of those groups doing this are looking into this. And so yeah. it could be in the future that you might be able to take a um, a preparation a little bit like lactase, you know, if you're lactose intolerant, mm. to be able to process uh, process these foods better. Yeah. Uh, lactose is a bit of a different one because that just gives you flatulence and makes you feel uncomfortable, whereas <laughs> gluten can actually cause real problems if yeah. if you're gluten intolerant or you yeah. have uh, if you have celiac disease. Yeah. 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 Um, I was going to ask you about, I don't know if you know much about, uh, I think there's, I think, and I haven't looked into this, so this is purely just uh, maybe a little bit of Dr. Google, but, but other things that other people have said. But my understanding, there is a connection between the brain and the gut. And before we actually get into that, 
how do, how would you define what the term gut means? Because I feel like mm. it could be, you know, is it, it for you, is the gut just the large intestine or is it consists of the entire sort of digestive tract from the stomach all the way, or I guess even from further up, but yeah, yeah how would you, you say, define gut? Because I think, uh, I think it's kind of misused perhaps in the public. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure what the medical definition is. You know, I think of the gut as everywhere from, as we say, gum to bum, right? So it's okay. just the whole GI yeah. tract, including yeah. the okay. mouth. Okay. Uh, it's all one continuous tube. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of different tissue types as you go sure. through and lots of different uh, functions as you go through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's a bit tricky. And, and, and in my lab in particular, we study the colon. Or mm -hmm. the colonic microbiome, to be mm -hmm. clear, and so I'm, I'm with less. We're not. It's not that we're not interested in the small intestine. It's just it's a lot harder to sample the small intestine mm -hmm. ethically. You know, for for sampling the colon, we can just ask for stool samples for the most part. Sometimes we get biopsies as well from cancer patients and things like mm -hmm. that. But small intestinal microbiome research is lagging behind in a major way. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not that I don't want to study it. I think the problem that I have is I already have too many things to study. Yeah, and so if yeah. I were to, but how do I? Yeah, that that's how I define the gut. I I tend yeah. to even think we do look at the oral microbiome as well. Mm. Uh, in fact, that's how we got into colorectal cancer because we found a microbe in the mouth that seems mm. to be causing a problem in terms mm. of colorectal cancer. And so you know that's a connection you know between the two, and I don't think that's unique in terms of the type of you know the microbe that we found. There's probably several others that are similar. Because again, we're, it's all connected. Yeah, yeah. So but then, when if you think about just like gut health, if you're to uh, define it in your mind as like this entire GI tract, there are different functions for each part of that each part of that system, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and if you think about like how to yep. heal that part, uh, how to heal the gut, it's it's actually uh, it's a little bit more complex than just you know focusing on the microbiome within the colon, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Like Absolutely. if you're, if you're having, if you're having issues with, you know, mastication or what's going up in the upper GI tract versus like, if you're, you know, there's issues going with this, the stomach and maybe you're not, uh, maybe, I don't know if, because the stomach's role is really to, to break down the food, but also to sterilize things, right. Mm -hmm. With, with, with the acids that are there. And then if you have issues with, with, digestion maybe there's issues with the small intestine and the, you know so so i guess like when people talk about overall gut health it to me it's like a little bit uh that's a bit of a loose term yes because there I are different agree. parts of it that you need to kind of focus on maybe i totally agree i totally agree and yeah. you know as i said from from my lab's point of view we're we're really focusing on the colonic microbiome just because right. it's the most available but also for the reason that we do know um that the colon is the site where most bacterial fermentation in the body takes place. Mm. Uh, it's a, the organ, the colon, is actually you know, a, a beautiful, um, very well-designed uh, biological fermenter. And so mm -hmm. it's really encouraging these anaerobic microbes to kind of do their thing and make a whole bunch of metabolites, many of which we have no idea what they do yet. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them which have huge physiological effects and um, you know can help um, prevent leaky gut and all these other sorts of things that we read about um mm. and so um so that's why we're focusing on the colon but i totally agree and and i think it's it's, it's a shame that the small intestine is so difficult to get to <laughs> because yeah. i think we could do a lot of work there as well yeah we could. are there any indicators for people like for example looking at their stool samples 
uh, just looking at their stool or whatever, like that, that they give an, gives an indicator for how healthy their, their gut or their colon is or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so there is something called the Bristol stool chart. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's um, and some doctors actually have it tacked up, and some gastroenter- gastroenterologists have it tacked up in the um, mm. in their offices. And it's basically a picture of stool, <laughs> what it looks like, uh, mm-hmm. going from a scale. And I don't remember the scale. You'll have to forgive me, but um, the scale goes from uh, you know the loosest stool, so very loose, di- watery diarrhea, mm. to very hard stool like mm. pack stones kind of thing. And mm. you don't want to be mm. at either one of those extremes you you want to be somewhere right. in the middle i think there's one that's that's it's described as uh like a smooth snake or something like that it's pretty okay. great that's what i thought yeah the, yeah. For the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so basically if you're healthy um you should have at least one bowel movement a day yeah. possibly more you know not but not more than three let's say because then mm-hmm. you're kind of you know that that's not that's going the other way uh mm-hmm. all of those bowel movements should be very quick they should take mm. you as long to take a bowel movement as it does to to take a pee. You know, it shouldn't. Mm. It, you shouldn't be straining or or anything. Um, and um, there should be no pain. There should be no blood. The stool should look mm-hmm. kind of um, just you know brown. It shouldn't float uh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know overly and all. You know, there's all sorts of nasty things. I'm sure if you mm-hmm. googled it, you'd you'd mm-hmm. find a lot more descriptive stuff than that. Yeah. Um, and but it's really about bowel habits. So we can all have sort of a bowel movement like that, you know, once in a while. It's like a magical thing, and you get up and you think you feel great. Uh, <laughs> it, it's whether or not you do that every day, right? And that's yeah. that's the cons- it's the consistency part. I think yeah. is the important part. So you yeah. know, all of us are going to have you know days when we've eaten something bad, and that's <laughs> going to make yeah. us sick. But it yeah. should also return to normal fairly quickly. And um, yeah. yeah. I think that's helpful for people, right? Like yeah. to, to, to understand because not everyone uh, knows whether something is wrong with it, but I think sort of how things exit, if that is a good indicator for, especially if it's consistent, like mm-hmm. you're saying, like we're going to get flare ups. Sometimes we get stressed one morning and things turn shit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and sometimes stress <laughs> can make it go the other way as well because you diarrhea. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a, it's a yeah. big uh it's really about you know you know your own body and um and everyone everyone's going to be slightly different you should know you should just get used to looking in the toilet bowl as disgusting as it is i think it's uh, it's important to sort of get familiar with what what healthy feels like yeah so now going back to this sort of gut brain connection then um you know like we know that things like stress or whatever can 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 create sometimes inflammatory responses in your bowel movements or whatever but i wonder how like is for in your mind is there a connection there what does that maybe look like i don't know if you study that or know anything about that um in the gut brain connection yeah i mean i'm i'm interested in it for sure i don't study yeah. it per se uh, a little while yeah. ago we were very interested in um understanding which of the microbes that make neuroactive compounds i guess we're still interested in that from a honeybee point of view it's a different mm-hmm. story but um yeah, uh, that but there are groups now that have kind of taken that and run with it, and they're doing mm-hmm. really great, really great mm-hmm. work. Uh, there was a recent paper um, that I'm, I just read actually um, uh, earlier uh, this week uh, on uh, babies and babies being colonized by microbes that affect their ability to pick up skills like language skills and understanding mm-hmm. cognitive things and and uh, which seem to be associated with certain being colonized by certain microbes well there's a great indication of the gut brain connection i think 
what it's important to understand is that, of course, it's not the microbes themselves that are that that are important for the gut brain connection. In terms okay. of, the microbes are not crossing over into the bloodstream and ending up in the brain and doing things. If they mm. are, you're probably very very sick. Uh, <laughs> it's it's about the metabolites that the that the microbes are making. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there are so many metabolites. Many of them we have no idea what they are. Uh, yeah. Many of them have never been measured, um, and uh, probably a lot of them don't even have names <laughs> because we don't know what they are. And yeah. uh, and those metabolites, um, uh, they can. Some of the smaller ones can cross the blood-brain barrier very easily. Uh, Short-chain mm -hmm. fatty acids can do that, for example, and those we know have big physiological effects. And so there are definitely... Um, there's, there is a gut brain connection for sure. There is, I think that's undisputed now exactly how it works is something that's still being tried to sort of figured out, um, and exactly which microbes might be beneficial, whereas which ones might be detrimental again, you know, that's also likely to be less general and more individual and, um, and something that, that we'll figure out. But, uh, but this idea that, that microbes are important for brain development, I think is, is now well, um, I wouldn't say understood, but, but well appreciated. And mm -hmm. so there's, the, you know, you can look out for lots of research in that area. I think it's a really ripe area for research. Yeah. But, and then ending into, you know, the last sort of 40 minutes that we've had in our conversation, like how to, how to modulate a response to get something that you want. Like that's, yeah. we just don't know that, right? We don't know that. The, the, the yeah. danger is because we don't know that, that you could actually do more harm than good if you tried right. to manipulate it because yeah. these are, it's not a, you know, it's not a one component system here uh, where you're just making a small change. You know, when you make a change in an ecosystem, you have knock on what we call cascade effects that can happen on from that, that we can't predict mm. necessarily. And um, and you certainly can't predict it if you don't know much about the ecosystem to begin with, which I would say we're still in the infancy of, of that. So mm. so it's it's it, it's a lovely idea to think that we'll be able to you know colonize infants with all the right microbes that should you know turn on all these right pathways. But I don't know whether that's whether we're there yet. You know, it's it's going to take a while before we can make those kinds of predictions. I think if we are going to have therapies that affect people's brain and development that's probably where we'd have the greatest chance of actually having an effect but i say that and i'm also very interested in um uh the the brain and um and the guts in terms of depression and anxiety and i think that yeah. that's a that's an area there which i think is um is also currently under scrutiny i think we'll see some good stuff coming out of there but I do think that for people with depression and anxiety and uh, or certain people with those disorders, that that might originate in the gut and could be a result of some loss of microbe for any number of reasons, antibiotics, you know, illness, whatever, um, or just chronic, terrible diet, or even they never got colonized by them in the first place or, or who knows. Um, but um but I think it's exciting that there's potential that we might be able to mm. try to understand, if not give them the micros, but um, I think actually it might be better if we just understood what the metabolites were and provided yeah. those as a druggable target. You know, so it's a bit it's, it's a bit more easy to control if you just sort of find the metabolites and um, and do something there. There's so much. There, so what I'm hearing is that there's so much appreciation for the role of the microbiome and and you know, so many, in, in many areas of disease, or like you said, maybe depression, all these kind of things, 
the challenge though is that we don't know what to do next necessarily in terms of how to like those healing pathways are not very well understood right or what yeah. to do next i think and that so it's um, like it's yeah, the, the the pathways are not understood. So the healing pathways, yeah. or whatever we want to call them, is we don't we don't even know really where to look yet, or how yeah. to how yeah. to manipulate that. The you know we we what we can do is very very blunt uh, in terms of you know well let's give a fecal transplant. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, then you might be able to give back some of these microbes. Let's say it's a deficit in a particular microbe yeah. that's making a particular thing, and you might be able to put that back with a fecal microbial transfer. But you may also be putting back things which are detrimental and you may be mm. damaging the rest of the ecosystem that is sort of attuned to your own, you know, immune system. And so, as I mentioned before, the risk outweighs the benefit right now. And so in all medicine, it's a risk versus benefit mm. equation and you've got to get that right. And so just throwing, you know, shit at the problem, for want yeah, of a better yeah, way of saying yeah, it, is, yeah. not a, is, is not the answer. Yeah. Can, can, so when we, when our microbiome is, is developed in those early years, um, or any, like, is it all external? Like, is it all coming from external sources or can we also, can microbes develop within the gut based on kind of what's happening? I don't even know if that even makes sense, but like, can, can think, our own yeah, bodies I, develop microbes after like the, the everything's yeah. been colonized, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think what you're alluding to is can microbes in the gut evolve themselves? Yes, right? that's exactly, yeah. yes. Thank so, you. and the answer is probably yes. I mean, one thing that microbes and bacteria in, in particular are very good at is, is evolution because they have a lifespan that's way shorter than us and, and they mm. can, uh, you know, they, they have a doubling time, which is, uh, you know, a, a lot um, shorter than our lifespan. So they mm. do have the potential to do that. They also are masters of uh, picking up DNA from their environment uh, and utilizing it, right? And so, um, you know, there's mechanisms that allow that to happen. Bacteriophages is one of them, right? So these are the mm -hmm. viruses that infect bacteria. You used to think, oh, well, it's just because they're killing bacteria, but I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. You know, the, the killing is a side effect in some microbes, but there's actually a transfer of DNA when they do that. It could be mm -hmm. a way of getting DNA from one micro to another. And in fact, that's exactly how antimicrobial resistance spreads is through this kind of DNA sharing that bacteria is so good at. That's why it's such mm -hmm. a big problem. So the idea that microbes can evolve in a host is, a, is, is certain. It, it's certain, I would say. Is it well studied? No. I think that it's starting to be, and um, and there's certainly some really good work that's been done to sort of look at that over time. You know, what's what does your microbiome look like, you know, now and then in ten years? You know, but that's uh, obviously very difficult studies to do. To find the funding to be able mm -hmm. to do a ten year study is is very mm -hmm. very difficult. So um, I think we'll see we'll start to see more of those kinds of things because I do think it's important. Um, the question of where you pick up your microbes in the environment is another big one that we don't really know. And mm. again, it's probably different for different people. Remember mm. that you don't live in a sterile environment. You're picking up microbes yeah. all the time. Right. All the time. Now, those microbes don't all suddenly colonize your body. I think a certain set of circumstances has to be in place to allow these, as, as we said, immigrants to come in and do something. Um, mm -hmm. But... Um, the, and, and the interesting thing there is that your microbiome 
it isn't set for life. You know, it, it, it becomes very um, difficult to change after the age of around three. Uh, mm. But it does change a little bit and probably in some people more than others. And it does change when you take antibiotics and it does change when you have, uh, you know, major surgery or something like that. Or, you know, so, so it's adaptable. I don't want you to think that it's just a yeah. kind of immovable rock. Um, yeah. It's a very adaptable system. But there are forces that try to constrain that because you know if that if that happened all the time it was a runaway thing it would be not a great thing for our bodies because we like to be homeostatic <laughs> yeah yeah and is is the is there um something like is are, are there other parts of the body that have control over that like essentially kind of guiding the microbiome because like you said like they um they might be willing to accept, you know, immigrants into their microbiome, but maybe it's going to be detrimental. Like, mm -hmm. are, does the central nervous system have a control on that and kind of guiding in any way, or is it kind of its own system evolving on its own? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. I would say that all microbiomes in the body, are, you know, that they're, they're all constrained by the immune system in some way, and so okay. there there has to be some kind of interplay. We we know far more about the gut. I think that's the the issue because that's been studied far more um, mm. but um, I think the the thing to compare it to is something like an open system so so I consider a human as a sort of a closed system you know in terms of you know we're, we're open in fact we're eating but but it's a closed system because we have we're constrained by other forces like the immune system mm. but if you think about a pond for example full of water um, and our algae and all these other bacteria and things aren't in there what you see there is quite different. The, the bacteriophages, for example, come in waves. You don't see that necessarily in the human in the human gut. Uh, you see population spikes and changes, and and it's not nearly as homeostatic uh, because mm -hmm. it's not controlled in the same way. It's controlled by environmental um, you know, factors, of course it is, but it's not controlled by an immune system, if you like, for a single mm -hmm. individual. And so that's kind of where. Um, that that's the way that's the way I think about it. So, yeah, I don't know if that's answered your question. <laughs> no, that's a, that's that, that's great. Uh, we were last time you talked about how you love eating blueberries. And yes. You, you felt, you, like I think you even said like you you feel like it's a it's a maybe a good food. It might be, maybe it helps with it's with the candy the of the of the fruit world. Yes. That's yes, and so. Um, I don't know if you're still a big blueberry fan or, or whatnot. Okay. But uh, so, so, so are there, are there foods, other foods that, you know, again, this is, I'm just trying to maybe crack down on sort of what people are sharing over YouTube and over the yeah. internet about like, eat this food and it's going to be good for your microbiome. But like, yeah. I guess, are there things, I know you said we talked about fiber, but not everyone digests fiber really well, right? Nope. That also was, so are there any sort of truths in terms of any, whether it be categories of foods or particular foods that you feel like, you know, it's, it's, they're probably good to include in your diet. Yeah. Do you know, I, I've thought about this a lot because I think, I think it's dangerous to say, oh no, you should, you should eat blueberries because then you're going to find some people just going to eat blueberries <laughs> and nothing else. And that's, right. not, that's also yeah. not a great yeah. idea. So you have to kind of balance that out with, okay, well, what's, um, yeah. what's important here? So I think, What's important is eating a balanced diet. And what does that mm -hmm. mean? Well, I mean, Health Canada tried to, you know, mm -hmm. define that for us mm -hmm. for better or worse. I don't know. I mean, it's it's difficult, right? Because everyone mm -hmm. is different. And as yeah. you said, some people can tolerate some foods and intolerate others. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it, it's, it's just a hard thing to do. Um, so 
but I do think balance is important. So I think that um, eating, you know, some protein, some uh, carbohydrates, uh, you shouldn't cut out carbs. You know, I, I think fad diets are dangerous. I, I honestly do, because I think mm -hmm. that encourages people to eat in a very particular way, which mm -hmm. isn't necessarily supportive of their microbiome or even indeed their health. Mm. Um, so I think the healthiest diet is honestly one where you're taking in the right amount of vitamins and minerals without having to, um, and, and, you know, supplies for your microbiome as well, without having to supplement. And so what that looks like, it's really, I think we overthink it, honestly. I think mm. if you were to just eat a healthy diet, uh, and what I mean by that is eat, uh, you know, a good amount of um, fruits and vegetables and fresh food and stuff yeah. which isn't processed or pumped full of chemicals, that's, you know, I think we all inherently know that that's healthy and that that's the right thing to do. It's just so much easier living in the world that we are, that we do to eat convenience foods, you know, so just pull something yeah. off the shelf and it might be full of chemicals and you might not even check to see that. And, um, and I think, um, that's where the danger is. I do really worry about food mm. additives for, for, you know, we're, we're very interested, for example, in my lab, um, about, um, tartrazine, which is a color food color, a synthetic food color. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, um, it's a nasty chemical. I think it's the, it's the yellow color in, um, sort of Doritos and Mac and cheese and okay. Mountain okay. Dew and all that, <laughs> all yeah. that lovely stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yes. yeah. and, um, and it's, um, it's a it's a it's a food dye that's one of four that's allowed in Canada. It's a very stable molecule, which is why it's used. Very bright color, and um, the problem there is that it was assumed that because it's a very stable molecule, that doesn't get broken down in the body, and doesn't do anything. It just you know. But actually, um, you forgot that microbes are incredible biochemists. Remember, mm. uh, they can break down tartrazine very easily. Uh, many mm -hmm. of them do, and when they do, they make chemicals that we know now or we're starting to understand can be quite um inflammatory um they can damage microbes they can interfere with the way the microbiome goes now that's just one chemical mm. think about all the other chemicals that you ingest mm -hmm. every day and 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 that can include stuff in food but it also includes stuff in over-the-counter drugs in you know yeah. prescription drugs in any anything really anything that you take in now with your microbiome one of its major functions is to detoxify those things uh, but it's supposed to be there to detoxify you know things that you would take in naturally yes but now you're applying you know what we call xenobiotics Right, and we can't necessarily predict what might happen there. And in fact, there's mm. labs now that are that are testing a lot of these drugs that um, are often prescribed. You know, like uh, uh, I think a big one is um, uh, Digitalis or Digitonin. Uh, is mm. actually only broken down by uh, gut microbes in certain individuals. And that means that for those individuals, that medication doesn't work so well, right? So we need mm. to start um, thinking about that a little bit more and about... Um, you know, what we're eating, what we're ingesting in every yeah. sense of the word, how it might be affecting our microbiome and sort of risk versus benefit. And and we're really at the start of doing that, I think. I think where we, it's difficult to do that when in, in terms of your health, in terms of prescription drugs, because of course, if a doctor prescribes something, again, they've done their homework, it's, it's for your benefit. But mm -hmm. where you can have control is in what you eat. And yep. you certainly don't have to eat, you know, foods riddled with chemicals. 
um, I think a little bit of the um, the blame needs to be put on some of the food industry themselves for doing this. Mm. And um, and I think part of it is just awareness, though. I think if we were all aware of what the food industry did to our food, we would be pretty horrified for the most part. Mm. And it's it's unfortunate that to, in order to eat healthily, it's more expensive. I mean, that's, there's something really so wrong with that. So much more expensive, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we need to address that really at the grassroots level rather than just, you know, telling people eat healthy. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. not that easy to do. And um, it, it, part of it is an education piece as well. I think a lot of people who yeah. don't eat a healthy diet are unaware of what they're actually taking into their bodies. Yeah. When you say foods with chemicals, uh, are you thinking not only beyond processed foods and the additives there, but are you also saying even in produce, for instance, like the pesticides and all that sort of thing, or, yeah. or more just on the processed food side? Yeah, so that one, that's a... Uh... I know less about that. I, I am concerned. But then again, in order to feed, uh, you know, the billions of people in the world, we need to grow crops at a rate that we can sustain. And it's not easy to do if we, you know, if, if, if we're competing with pests for, uh, for sure. you know, crop production. So it's a bit of an open-ended thing. Now, are those chemicals um, being passed down and circulating in the body? I think it's an open question. It's one that's being studied. Um, mm. I, you know, I... <laughs> I feel, you know, if I can eat organic food, then lovely, right? But it's so much more expensive again. It's probably right. just right. better just to eat good, you know, produce and not worry as much about right. the pesticides and the herbicides and everything. Mm. The other thing is we don't know what, um, how much is on these foods and actually sort of measuring the traces mm. that are on these foods and mm. whether they stay, uh, whether they get, um, what happens to them in the body. Um, are they detoxified? You know, this could be something that, ours, that the microbiome is doing us a favor with. You know, I, I just yeah. don't know. I don't think we really know the answer to that. Perhaps because we're a bit afraid to find out. Because as I said, mm. if we discover that these pesticides are causing a big problem, then that, there is really no alternative to being able to get produce you know done in an economical in, way exactly right? yeah, exactly the and then it becomes yeah. more expensive and yeah. yeah that's that's a real problem but i feel for the farmers because you know they're under pressure all the time to produce cheap produce right produce mm -hmm. cheap meat produce cheap but the now yeah. but don't use antibiotics and don't use this and don't use that they're, they're kind of in an impossible situation because mm -hmm. they've been conditioned to do all of those things in order to increase their yields and now they're being told well, this is the way the system's set up right that's right that's yeah, right. Yeah, so I think yeah. a little bit of it is is sort of appreciating just in general. Everyone can appreciate just a little bit more about how food is produced. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a bit of a movement as if you can, you know, grow your own vegetables. And I think I, I mm -hmm. love that idea. And there's even if mm -hmm. you've only got a balcony on a, you know, in a, yeah. in, in a, in a flat or something, yeah. there's still ways that you can do that. There's still ways that you can access community gardens. I think we need to push for that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. and um and try and get you know a bit more funding i think it's awesome when kids learn how to do that because that's a skill that's that's lost otherwise and it's just such an important skill you think it would be a simple 100%. thing yeah but yeah. i really think that that would be an amazing way that we could make a difference is you know get kids to really understand how to grow and uh, you know maintain crops 
and vegetables. It seems like it seems like hydroponics and indoor gardening is also yep. kind of taken off too, especially with when the during the pandemic. Uh, so you know, hopefully, people more and more people are growing their foods. It's not that hard. It's really yep. not that hard. It isn't. Yeah. It isn't. And yeah. I think, uh, and it's not. Um, you know, once you have the equipment, it's not that expensive either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's it's you need patience and you need yes. to be you know yes. you need to be on top of it you can't you know yeah. it's like keeping a pet you can't just stop watering them <laughs> feeding yeah. them and uh, expecting them to thrive you know so i think uh, but i think again that comes from education so. Yeah, there's nothing better than a, just a homegrown strawberry. Like oh, yeah. the 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 flavor of a strawberry you've grown versus something you get in the stores. It's not even not even close. Yeah, right? I'm growing. Yeah. Um, my favorite vegetable right now that I'm growing is sunchokes. Have you have you ever sunchokes? tried sunchokes? No, never, no, I don't know what that so, is. So they're also called Jerusalem artichokes. Okay. And they are very high in inulin. They're also called fartichokes because they, okay. <laughs> if you if you eat too many of them, then they can give you severe wind. Right. Uh, but they are very tasty in small amounts, roasted. Very okay. very tasty. It's one of my favorites, and so I've grown them. They're they're a little bit invasive. You don't want to put them in. You know, they're, they're like a relative of the sunflower. You don't want to put them yeah. uh, somewhere. You need a space to put them. You can put them in a pot though, and they would do yeah. well. Um, okay. But um, if you plant them in your garden, then your whole garden will be covered <laughs> in sunshakes before you know it. You might not like yeah. that. So but, they're not uh, necessarily local to to Canada per se. They are, in fact, they're one of the few that are oh. native to Canada. Okay. So oh, okay. uh, the indigenous people uh, used, um, you know, grew these things and, and mm -hmm. knew about them for a long time, and so yeah. Oh, I might have to. I wonder if it would grow in our zone here in Edmonton. Be yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'll give it a try. They're very hardy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to get into your honeybee research. Before I do that, just a couple more, a couple of food-based questions. Um, one is like, so my family is of East Indian descent. Um, you know, turmeric is a big uh, yeah. part of the Indian Indian diet. And I always wondered sort of, you know, uh, I think people use it for in India for medicinal purposes, but it's just there all the time. It's in every food. And I kind of wonder like the impact that it's had on, on their health, like in a yeah. beneficial way, it's known to be antimicrobial in, in nature, but just wondering if you have any thoughts on, on turmeric and, um, its interaction with, with the microbiome. You know, I don't I don't specifically know too much about that, but I do know that there is, as you said, research being done because it it is one of the um, uh, you know the the, the superfoods, if you like, and mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. we will be encouraged to use it. I haven't seen anything detrimental about it, put mm -hmm. it like that. And mm -hmm. uh, I actually use it quite a bit, even though I don't wear a white shirt when I'm eating it because that can be a <laughs> yeah. big problem. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, but no, I I think that. Um, that that and that there's several other sort of herbs as well which i think are super herbs one is garlic mm -hmm. one is ginger mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. you know i think a lot of those things and again these are these are things that um not turmeric necessarily but uh yeah. that, that you can grow in your garden and um and and i think that, that you can get a lot of benefit from them so i think um yeah it's interesting i i don't know too much about that but i i do know that it is used in a medicinal way i don't think yeah. there's been too much in the way of research on that i think unfortunately you know there's, there's no money behind being, that right yeah exactly no <laughs> yeah, one really yeah. exactly no one really funds the kind of research yeah. to look at yeah. sort of superfoods and things like that yeah. which is a shame um yeah. but yeah no i think that that is a that's a good food yeah, yeah. I also wonder about the people in India who bathe in the Ganges rivers, right? Like, it's, oh, yeah. I don't know if yeah. it's right. Like, I wonder, like, in, t in terms of environmental influences on someone's microbiome, like, you know, people are, 
I've heard I've heard stories about people just people don't get sick, right? Like yeah. they, they're oh, just I exposed to so much. So I, I, I'm I sure know. someone studied people there. I don't know if you know anything about that, but yeah. Yeah, again, I, I don't know anything specifically, but I will. I mean, again, anecdotally, I'll tell you about my uh, student, David Good, who is the yes, healthy yeah, animal yeah, yeah, man. So yeah. when he goes yeah. to the jungle to visit his family, in fact, he's there right now. Yeah. Um, he, okay. uh, he eats what they eat. He bathes in the water and drinks the water that they drink. He mm. doesn't necessarily sterilize everything. And he says every time he goes for a couple of days, he's super sick. You know, he gets terrible mm. diarrhea. And mm-hmm. then it just kind of goes away and it's, and then he's fine. And, mm. um, you know, I've thought about this and I could actually study it. I guess, you know, we we could study <laughs> yeah. it, but it, I yeah. wouldn't know where to start with that. And that would be mm-hmm. an N of one, mm-hmm. which would be a tricky thing, mm-hmm. to, tricky thing to do. But I think, um, yeah. uh, you know, from the point of view, when you, when you travel anywhere and you get that kind of, you know, traveler's diarrhea and things like that, that's kind of been associated with, again, strains of E. coli that, mm-hmm. uh, that are sort of endemic to the area that you're visiting, but aren't necessarily in the area that you are. It's almost like your body has to kind of, learn how to tolerate them once it's sort of seen them. So it's an immune yeah. response, if you like. And, uh, you know, remember back in our ancestral years, we didn't globally travel. So uh, we wouldn't necessarily have seen that. So, yeah, that's an interesting yeah. one. Yeah. Um, the other food I wanted to quickly talk about is, or not food, but I guess just fun- fungi, like uh, yeah. mushrooms. And, like, you know, we know that that's so important from the soil microbiome, right? Yeah. But just yeah. the ingestion, I guess, of mushrooms, uh, we know there's a lot more interest in psychedelics and mushrooms and that sort of yeah. thing. But just that, I don't know if you have any thoughts about yeah. mushrooms and, and the microbiome and that sort I mean, of thing. I like mushrooms, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm not yeah. sure if I yeah. have any specific uh, uh, feedback for you there. I think, yeah. um, uh, I mean, I do. I'm very interested, again, in what David's family eat in the jungle. Mm. They do eat a lot of mushrooms. They forage mm. them. And, uh, and yeah, the psychedelic mushroom movement is, is gaining traction mm-hmm. for other reasons, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, there's, they're, they're a very good source of... Um, of uh, vitamins and minerals we might not otherwise mm. get and um and they're they're easy to grow they don't need light so that's nice mm-hmm. you know you can grow them mm-hmm. in your basement or whatever mm-hmm. um so i think um yeah i think mushrooms are un- are underappreciated like yeah. that uh, but i think yeah. also you've got to be very careful because you have to know if you're foraging for mushrooms in the wild you really have to know what you're looking for yeah. uh before you go and consume something i've, I've heard too many stories of people who haven't done that and have done their homework and ended up in the hospital and or maybe even dead because they did that and that's um yeah it's it's that's amazing cool. what uh like the way fungi are able to essentially uh i've read some stuff about how uh they can remediate soils right like or remediate uh, environmental disasters and all kinds of things it's it's incredible like the the spread of their networks right in our soil that's right we we don't appreciate them enough for sure no and just what you when you see a mushroom that's just the tiny tiny part of the 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 whole organism yeah Yeah. and uh underground the whole mycelial networks that connect trees Mm -hmm. and allow them to communicate with each other it's just an amazing world that we just were you know we're starting to become aware of but otherwise mm-hmm. have been pretty unaware of yeah yeah cool uh let's uh shift maybe here at the end to talk about this honeybee research you mentioned about it i was just 
I'm so curious about what this all entails. So maybe tell us about what what this what this is about. Sure. Yeah. It sounds weird, right? It's like, yeah. Hang on, Emma. You you work on the colonic microbiome in humans, <laughs> so why work on the microbiome bees? And I think I have to credit a um, my postdoc, my current postdoc, Brendan Daisley, Dr. Brendan Daisley, who joined me uh, a couple of years ago now um, to uh, his uh, previous. Um, uh, supervisor for his PhD was a was a collaborator of mine, and so he said, you know, you you got to take Brendan on. He's really interested in the microbiome, but he works on bees. And I'm like, well, I don't work on bees. I don't know the first thing about bees. And in fact, <laughs> you know, I, I get a nasty allergic reaction when I get stung by bees, so I don't okay. really. Like yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but anyway, I I met with him, and he he basically told me that you know bees are obviously we all understand they're of great importance for pollination. But they're just also a fabulous model, eusocial insects model of um, how a microbiome might affect uh, social cues and uh, and other things. Mm. And so, uh, so Brendan started in my lab, and he's a very talented guy. He uh, he wanted to get so we have the robo gut, right, which is the system that we mm -hmm. have to culture microbes from the human gut in an ecosystem on the bench. And so he created in a very short space of time after joining my lab, the Robe gut, which is basically taking tiny, tiny amounts. of you can imagine a bee, you can dissect it out to get the microbiome. You can take that tiny microbiome and grow an entire ecosystem now wow. in the lab. And so mm -hmm. because we can do that, there's a whole bunch of microbes um, in the honeybee gut that we know nothing about. No one's ever studied them. No one's ever really bothered to look. Uh, I think that's starting to change now. Mm. But they could have very big importance on the health of honeybees. Now, the the background issue to all of this is that in a very similar to way to what's been happening in humans, the honeybees have been suffering what we call colony collapse disorder. So they all yeah. of a sudden over the winter, they just die off, right? That, that never mm. used to be a problem and it's becoming more of an issue. And so... Brendan's kind of hypothesis or thesis about all of this is that it's, again, it's similar to what's happening in humans. It's antibiotic use. And actually, beekeepers do use a lot of antibiotics oh. uh, to keep there's certain pathogens that you really don't want in your hives. And it's sort of like mm. used as a prophylactic to sort of keep these things away. Um, and beekeepers, obviously, their bees are uh, exposed to the same herbicides and pesticides and things mm -hmm. that they are from mm -hmm. the crops that they're trying to um, pollinate. And so we thought this could be a really good way of looking at this so we created this roby gut and now we've got all of these microbes and now we can test the microbes for the effects of antibiotics and pesticides and herbicides and all the rest of it so we're we're kind of doing that uh, well we are doing that um, but at the same time uh, we started something called the Canadian bee gut project because um, so there was something a few years ago still around called the human gut the um, American, American gut, gut project. project. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned so that. So we, yeah. we modeled it on that. So basically, we're asking the question, well, what do bee gut microbiomes look like across Canada? And actually, we know a little bit of that. Some people have done some sort of, you know, independent studies of certain bees in certain areas. But in order to look across the whole of Canada, you have to really use the same sequencing system in order to keep bias mm -hmm. out of it. So okay. what we're doing is collecting bee samples across Canada in the fall and then um, we're asking the beekeepers to then tell us over the winter whether their colonies collapsed or not and if they didn't uh, to then sample again in the spring so that then we have two samples, hopefully, from from hives that didn't collapse. And that, once we've sequenced it all, and once we aggregate the data, because we were asking for a lot of data here, you know, a lot of data mm -hmm. points, what we're hoping for is we'll start to see some patterns where we might see 
microbiome signatures that correlate with the ability for a hive to withstand the winter essentially for whatever reason yeah. and so that's what the honeybee uh, sorry the, the canadian bee gut project is mm. and at the same time we thought well we can actually also culture a lot of these microbes and so we're trying to see whether we can create healthy bee gut microbiomes that we could then use as a as a treatment a probiotic if you want to call it that you've got to be careful again using the word probiotic <laughs> but right. but a, a way of sort of colonizing hives to give them the right sort of microbes that might help them withstand, um, you know, insult. And mm. and then at the same time, because it's just become a big thing in my lab, it's just suddenly all this bee stuff. Again, there's social insects. There's incredible things that you can do to look at bees and see whether there are certain microbes that influence the way that they behave. In again, mm -hmm. an analogous way to humans, quite a different set of microbes, I imagine, and different sets of pathways. We are insects and humans after all, but uh, but it's it's really an analogous thing. And again, looking for metabolites. And now bees have a simpler microbiome than we have, so that sort of helps. Okay. And we also don't have the ethical implications. You know, we mm. we you know we don't like to kill a lot of bees. We don't tend to do mm -hmm. it very often, but we don't have to kill that many bees to get samples mm -hmm. of microbiomes. Mm. And um, so right now we're in the process of trying to set up um, germ-free um, bee colonies that, or, or I should say notobiotic larvae that we can colonize with p particular microbes so we can understand what that does to the, to the bee. And so all mm. of this stuff, it's really Brendan's baby. Um, I'm there, I'm allowing it to happen just because, you know, I can apply for grants with him and, and do all those kinds of things. I right. really fully expect him to go off and do incredible things in his own yeah. career. Um, yeah. And that's my goal all along is just to get him going. But honestly, mm. I've got so into bees that I think I'll probably maintain some bee work in my own lab for, for some time to come. I just think that they're fascinating. And and the number of novel species that we've isolated um, is is just kind of growing we don't know what those do, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, at least in the human gut microbiome, it's, it's pretty rare to come up with novel species, although we are finding them in the anamami. Mm. But, um, but in the bee gut, it seems like every other day, <laughs> a new thing come up and, and we just don't understand what they're doing. Yeah. And, um, and so maybe we can make a difference there. So who knows? And so the implications of this research are largely focused on supporting bee colonies right it sounds like to, for them yeah, to get through yeah. from from fall through to through the spring perhaps and also understand some of the the social behaviors there but i guess there's also then maybe some implications for for humans as well maybe i think so yeah i think well yeah. i mean our health depends on pollinator health yeah if we had no pollinators i'm sure you're aware you know we would have a, a very different looking dinner table yeah. and um and and we study honeybees because they're commercially important but i actually mm -hmm. also in my lab we look at honeybees as a sort of a uh, corollary to native pollinators you know it's very difficult mm -hmm. to get funding to study native pollinators but the honeybees forage in the same areas as the native pollinators do so mm -hmm. you can do a little bit of um extrapolation uh, from one to another, and um, mm. and we know very much less about you know how well native pollinators survive uh, the winter and whether that's changed and all the rest of it. But I think with all the other things that are happening, climate change, everything, uh, I think it behooves us to really look at this in a bit more of a serious way. And yeah. um, and I think that's true for every animal species. Actually, we're all human centric, uh, but um, but we're just you know the, the great thing about studying honeybees, although it sounds like it's crazy. Why Emma? Why would you do that? You know, um, 
we're not using anything different in my lab to what we already use to study human microbes, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same microbiology, it's the same, it's just a slightly different set of conditions. And um, yeah, so so why not? And if we yeah. can add to knowledge there, and that's very easy for honeybees because there's not a lot of knowledge out there, then I think, um, then great, you know, then I've done my job kind of thing. And I hope that uh, Brendan will go on to do incredible things. In fact, I know he will because he's mm. he's that kind of a guy. You should what interview. An amazing, I will, I will, <laughs> there's there's a couple of people. I got to talk to David, and I got to yes. talk to to Brendan here. Um, yeah, what an amazing addition to to your lab. Uh, I was going to ask, like, could you study the honey, like, to get a sense of the microbes at all? Because yep. my understanding is honey is just essentially almost like bee vomit, right? Yeah, is it is. It's right? bee spit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Yes, you can. And in fact, people do. Honey is not actually a very good substrate for microbes to survive in because okay. it's a very high concentration of sugar. It's very osmolality. I don't know what the word is, but it's nasty. It's not It's not a good situation okay. for a microbe to be in. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's liquids would be leached out of it pretty quick. So mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why honey lasts for such a long time um, when you mm. buy it. You know, it doesn't tend to go off uh, because there's not a lot of things that can mm -hmm. grow in it. It's kind of magical in that way. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, um, it's come from bees and the bees are colonized by microbes and their DNA, um, the DNA of those microbes will be present. And so that is something. Mm -hmm. I. It's not something that we're doing. Uh, we're less interested in yeah. the honey, yeah. believe it or not, but we are uh, yeah. more interested in uh, some of the other bee products that are made, the wax, the propolis, all this kind of thing. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that, that you can definitely look at it. Certainly flavor compounds that, that come, you know, different honeys taste different. And you think, okay, that, that comes from the crops on which the, mm. uh, the bees or the flowers on which the bees were foraging yeah. on. And it does to a certain extent, but it also comes from the microbes that help to digest that pollen right and uh, yeah. to produce those flavored compounds and so even understanding that would be you know interesting and it's yeah. not just the bacteria either there's a whole bunch of fungi going back to the fungi there's mm. a whole bunch of fungi in bee guts so mm. interesting. interesting bugs yeah um i mean it's good to know that uh that the microbes are probably not surviving because i think now people are making claims about eating honey and getting your probiotics that way and yeah. and all that sort of thing too so no, anyway, it's never yeah. it's not it's never ending right like i know you have to be very things, careful so. there are some forms of bacteria that can survive in honey and they do as spores and it's, it's pretty well known so mm. when you have unpasteurized honey there is a risk especially to infants um who don't have a very well developed gut uh, of actually getting botulism uh, oh. Because there's a soil-dwelling microbe, is Clostridium botulinum, which is which makes the toxin, mm -hmm. can actually mm -hmm. get into the uh, the spores, can get into the honey, and that's one of the reasons why um, eating unpasteurized honey, if you have an, an a compromised immune system or mm -hmm. if you're an infant, is not a good idea. So, um, but yeah, I think that there's probably benefits, just like a lot of functional foods, the benefits that you get are more from the microbes making substrates with the food so some of the small molecules in the food than it is the mm. microbes themselves i think that's true for honey too yeah yeah uh just wanted to check on time any final things you want to sort of talk about as far as your research or takeaways that you want people to kind of know about we we did we went through yeah. a lot today which is fantastic yeah. So. <laughs> yeah i feel like i've been talking for a long time so i probably should shut up i i, I think um i think my my biggest bugbear that I have right now is that there's so much in the popular press about, you know, 
uh, like you're like you're pointing out, like beneficial micros doing this, and and I just mm. would urge people to be, you know, to do their homework and to kind of just think, you know, what check and see whether real research has been done, rather than just trusting these companies that you know they come up with something and it's beneficial because they say so. Mm. I think you. I think we need to take a little bit of a uh, uh, a step back from that and mm -hmm. just sort of some reality there. And I think the other thing I would do is just, just urge people if they want to try probiotics or try, it's, it's not that, that I'm saying don't do it. I'm just saying mm. be aware of what a probiotic actually is, mm -hmm. the difference between a probiotic and a beneficial microbe um, and how to tell whether or not a probiotic is a good probiotic. You know, I think mm -hmm. um, those would be my, uh, uh, my, my take homes for today. Yeah. Yeah. I think some people are just so tired of, of, uh, physicians prescribing drugs all the time. And I, I know there's a little bit more consciousness about, you know, maybe yeah. not doing that as much. And so people are looking to other yeah. alternatives, right? And, right? and they, and they, in theory think, and I thought that too, that's why I asked the question that, uh, you know, probiotics are probably a good thing and it makes sense. Oh, they're going to colonize your gut and yeah, my, yeah. my microbiome is going to be all healthy and all that. But so, yeah, this is really helpful. I yeah. think natural yeah. medicine in, in a, in a nutshell, I think that there's some benefit there. There is, but it's really not studied yeah. well. And, mm. um, and so, you know, that the science has been done is not very, uh, strong science to me anyway. And some of the, some of the studies are really not worth the paper that they're written on. Mm. And so I just feel that, uh, well, I wish that we could have the funding to do it properly. I just don't think it's forthcoming. Yeah, I think that's a big, I think that's a big missing piece, right? Is yeah. The funding too, yeah. So, but I yeah. also think that, that people should be aware that just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good. Um, sure. so for example, right, salmonella is natural. And it also, mm. uh, just like a probiotics, sometimes are told, you know, you can take this probiotic yogurt and it, it, it makes your bowels go faster or makes you more regular. Well, salmonella will also make your bowels go faster, mm -hmm. but it's not a good thing. And it's natural. So, you know, mm. so it's just to be aware that natural does not always equal good. So sure. I think we just have to be a bit careful about just sort of treating, you know, everything that's natural is, is better for us. Uh, I appreciate your time, Emma. It's always a fascinating conversation. Uh, I always learn so much from you. I always appreciate your approach to just, you know, you say something, but you qualify things as a true scientist. And that's why I always love talking to you. Like you're not, you, you might have strong opinions about something, but you're always, you always do a good job of sort of balancing things out. So I hope people will sort of find uh, this conversation uh, as interesting as I always do. I do want to, uh, hopefully I get to talk to David first one day. Uh, I really want to understand his experiences. I know I read up on his foundation. It seems like he's doing fantastic work yes, with, with that. Yeah. So, so hopefully, um, we can connect at some point, but uh, thank you again for, for making time and being my second nobody today. Always <laughs> appreciate having you. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today like and subscribe if you really enjoyed this episode and continue to watch out and listen for more to come thanks so much for your time thanks i appreciate you again okay bye everyone <laughs>